All right, let me start out today. I'm going to jump ahead a couple slides. Who can tell me what these two things are? I know it's rocket science here. So jump ahead a couple slides if you can, Kyle. Well, that looks like Jesus and some people. Okay, what else we got? Next one. Who can tell me what these two things are? What's the one on the left? It's a thermometer. What's the one on the right? What's the role or the job of a thermometer? It tells the temperature, right? It's, it's, it's an indicator simply of what's going on. It's telling you the temperature. It tells you the conditions that exist around it, right? That's, that, that's a, a thermometer. A thermostat, on the other hand, is a little different. Not only does it tell you what the temperature is, but what does it do? It changes it, right? It, change, it brings transformation to it. it. It influences its surroundings. If it gets too cold in the winter, it clicks on it and changes the environment. Now, we're, we're obviously uh, talking about leadership here at Ignite. These, we started a new series last week, but let me, we talked about the significance of Jesus. But which one do you think G- Jesus was? Did he sort of just show you and, and kind of give a, a snapshot of what the environment was around him, or did he change it? And what does he call his followers to do? Really? You seem like you weren't so sure. Are we just supposed to reflect the, the environment and the culture around us? Or does God want to use us as change agents to bring transformation to see the kingdom of God come a little bit more fully uh, to this earth as it is in heaven? Thank you. All right. <laughs> you know, I think, I think for too long, uh, really, I mean, I think for too long, the church in America really has been more of the first than the second. We've been more of a simple thermometer, just sort of reflecting the environment around us, right? And, and we kind of have extremes that we do this, but we're, we're kind of on one side or the other of this. A lot of times, uh, the church in America has, has just been either a reflection of the culture around us. For instance, the divorce rate inside and outside the church, pretty much the same, right? It's about the same. Uh, the uh, usage of pornography inside, outside the church, about the same. Right? There are so many ways in which the church has just, just sort of taken on the culture around us so much so that there's no power. There's, no, there's nothing different. The, the, the outside world looks at the church and says, why would I, why would I do that? I, I, I don't see it. Either that or then we get the other extreme of people that are like, uh, you know, the judgmental, hypocritical, whatever ones on the other extreme. They're looking down our noses at people that are struggling and saying, oh, blah, 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 blah. But we stay over here in our little holy huddle where, again, we just have our own little little group right here. We still don't have influence. We don't have impact. We don't change the culture because we're too busy hiding and tucking away from there. Our little Christian subculture, that kind of thing. For too long, I think the church has existed in one way or another, just sort of showing either in a reactionary way or in a way that we're totally impacted by it. We just show the temperature the, the, of the, the culture around us. And yet, as we talked about last week, what we see from Jesus is completely the opposite. What we see even from the, the early church, those first few centuries, turned the world upside down. It wasn't a reflection of, uh, of the culture in which they lived. It was a reflection of the kingdom of God and of the king of kings coming down and transforming people's lives, right? I mean, it was, it was, it was totally different. As we talked about, Jesus didn't just come as a good teacher to impart some nuggets of wisdom. He didn't just come to make us feel better about ourselves. He came to completely transform our lives, our eternities, even the world in which we live. He came to change everything. And part of his strategy, part of why, what he did in the midst of that is Jesus came, he takes his followers, he saves them, he pays the price for their sins and for our sins on the cross. 
He teaches them and gives them a vision of the kingdom of God, of what, what life could be like if he, if he were at the helm of our lives, if he were at the helm of our church. He gives us a snapshot. He gives them a snapshot of that. He infuses and empowers them with his spirit, and then he sends them out, like we talked about, right? He, he sends them out and says, go and make disciples. He says, go and be salt and light. He says, you are the light in the world. Live in such a way that your light shines for that everybody that sees it can see your good deeds, and they praise your Father in heaven. They're going to they're gonna bring glory to God one day because they recognize that is Jesus, right? That's Jesus. It's transformational. He says, go and be salt and light. He says, go and serve the poor. Go and be my ambassadors, right? Tell everybody you meet, everybody that'll listen to you that there's a savior that's come and his name is Jesus. And man, life with him is, is where it's at. Go and be my ambassadors, right? Go be my witnesses. Go serve the poor. Go and live every day. Pray this prayer and live it out. Pray this prayer. He says, when, when you pray, I want you to pray, God, may your kingdom come and your will be done like it is in heaven. Make what, what life is like up here come down here in my life, in my world, in the culture in which I live. Would you bring transformation? Would you good, bring your good and perfect will to bear here? He says, pray that and live that sucker out, right? <laughs> live for that end. Last week, we started out this new series called Leadership by the Book. And we talked about the jaw-dropping influence that Jesus had and still has on people's lives and on the world in which we live. It's amazing kind of stuff and how he calls uh, his followers to do the same. I read some more stuff this, this week, by the way, and so I'm going to share it because I was totally geeking out. And so I'm going to share my geeking out stuff with you, and hopefully you guys think it's cool too. If not, I'm going to have fun, so like, come along with me. But, uh, but, but anyway, I read some stuff. Uh, started out with a guy by the name of Yuroslav Pelkin. Pelikin. Uh, he, he wrote this book called Jesus Across the Centuries, and he was just talking about the significant influence of Jesus. Listen to this. This is a quote. From his book, he said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It's written a little bit ago. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? What's the implied answer? <laughs> Pretty much nothing, right? Because it, he is so impacted our culture still uh, in jaw-dropping ways. We don't even know it because we grew up in this culture. We don't even realize how significant it was. But let me share a few more things that I was learning this week. I mean, one way that Jesus has influenced society, has influenced the world that he lived in and even ours now is through this whole idea of compassion and sort of mercy ministries, caring for the poor, caring for kids, caring for widows, caring for those that need it most, those that are starving or uh, whatever. And uh, listen to this. This is some interesting stuff. In the first three centuries of the church, so the first three, three centuries uh, after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, there were two major epidemics that wiped out between a quarter and a third of most of the major cities in the Roman Empire. One ancient writer says that it created such panic in the general population that at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest loved ones, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as if it was dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagiousness of these fatal diseases. So you kind of get the picture, right? The first onset, like they have a symptom, achoo, right? <laughs> or whatever, right? They, the first symptom, they would kick people out of 
of their homes, and when they got sick, they would roll them into the roads and leave them to die. That was the, that was the dominant culture in the ancient world. That's how people lived their lives. That's how they treated that kind of stuff. But, but here's what, where it gets crazy. But followers of Jesus in that day would go out into the roads. They would bring sick people they did not know and whom they were not related to. They would bring them into their homes and care for them at risk of their own health. Because, like they would say, that's what Jesus did. Jesus, the one we follow, he cared for lepers. He cared for the lame, the blind, the deaf, and the mute. If he cared for them, that's how we are to live as well. So they'd go out and they would care for, I mean, it's like jaw-dropping. In a culture and in a world that was like, oh, heck no. We're just going to kick out anything that is going to make us sick or be bad for us. We'll kick them out into the road and leave them for die. Christ followers were going down, stooping down, picking up people, bringing them into their homes with their kids and their loved ones because that's what Jesus would do. In the fourth century, what was essentially the first hospital was started by a follower of Jesus named Benedict. And by the sixth century, every monastic community virtually had a hospital that was attached to him because this idea that we are to live with compassion on any human being who is suffering or who is weak or who is sick or who is abandoned took root and was transforming in this culture. So much so that by the time you get to the Geneva Convention, and they start looking to start an organization which would focus on alleviating human suffering. They chose as its symbol a large cross that we now refer to as the Red Cross. It comes directly down the lineage of Jesus and his followers. When you hear of organizations like the Salvation Army or World Vision or Easter Seals or the YMCA or Goodwill or International Justice League or even Habitat for Humanity, when you go to hospitals that have names like Methodist or St. Francis, you can see the touch and the influence of Jesus. That stems directly from him. He was and is a leader like no others. His influence changed the world and is still changing the world today. He is like no other. One scholar says this. He says, if you ask what Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion is, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution that is self-giving for the lowly schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those that will never be able to repay, he says it probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing. His influence was second to none. That's the influence of Jesus. That's the influence of his church, the way we're meant to live. Those that follow Jesus and live in and live out his kingdom values and his priority in their lives. That is how God calls all of us. If you are a follower of Jesus, that's how Jesus calls you to live. I read another article that was talking about the fact that Jesus was the original, kind of the originator of the idea of forgiveness should be a part of dealing with conflict and resolving relational discord. It sounds crazy now because that's just a part of our world. But that was not a part of the ancient world. It comes directly from the lips of Jesus who started teaching stuff like this. Love your enemies right, and pray for those that persecute. He started teaching about turning the other cheek or to forgive as I have forgiven you. No one thought that day in that day. Right? No, nobody, nobody was teaching that stuff before Jesus. In fact, one non-Christian, uh, possibly even atheistic scholar from Princeton says this, says, 
The discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs is Jesus. Boom. His influence, friends, it's everywhere. We almost take it for granted because it's, it's what we grew up in. But in the, the ancient world was a brutal and self-protective place. And Jesus came and turned that world right side up for the first time. And if you are a follower of Christ, then you are called to follow his lead. And not just tell the temperature of your environment, but to change it for God's kingdom. You're called to influence those around you for Christ and his kingdom. And in that sense, you and I, all of us, are called to be leaders. We're called to be, bear influence. Now today, I'm going to take the next step, and I want to talk about uh, leading the hardest person you'll ever have to lead. You want to guess who that is? <laughs> Yourself, right? Learning to lead ourselves. We tend to think about leadership uh, as being in a position of power or authority and leading people kind of underneath of us. And sh- certainly, there's, there's parts of, sure, exerting your influence to those that are around you. But that's not the most important part. That's not the hardest part. Jesus has a ton to teach and a ton to say. The Bible has a ton to say about learning to lead ourselves first. Learning to lead ourselves first. Our own hearts, our own souls, even. Proverbs 4.23, Old Testament says, Above all, says, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from that. In other words, our inner worlds greatly impact our outer worlds. You can't lead others until we... We learn to lead ourselves and guard our own hearts, our own attitudes, our own thoughts even. This principle is a a, a common one in Jesus' kingdom. and seen often through his teachings, through his interactions. Jesus' harshest words, his most critical and severe words were reserved for those who seemingly had their outer worlds together, a well-ordered facade, but internally they were a mess. These people, by the way, were leaders. And Jesus, Jesus called them things like blind guides and whitewashed tombs and hypocrites. It's like, in fact, at one point he's teaching and saying, man, you spent so much time worrying about the outside. It's like, don't worry about the outside. Worry about the inside. Lead yourself. Guard your own heart. Do the work you need to. Submit yourself to, to God and his kingdom. The outside will take care of itself, right? It's it's that whole idea. It sort of permeates Jesus' teaching. The whole idea, man, before we worry about anything else externally, we've got to get a grip on our own hearts, our own souls. First, worry about the inside, and the outside will take care of itself. Paul emphasized the importance of, of self-leadership and self-care in his letters to Timothy. He, he sort of explains some of the prerequisites for any type of leadership in the church. And he talks about the type of character that's needed for that leadership. He talks about things like being self-controlled, self-controlled. It's an image of having a a bit in the mouth of an animal and being able to turn it one way. Self-control, right? Self-control. He talks about living our lives in a way that we are worthy of respect. He talks about not being a, a lover of money. And be, keeping hold of the deep truths of the faith. These are internal self-leadership, characterological kinds of things. As leaders, we tend to reproduce who we are. If we are not living our lives as disciples and as followers of Christ, then we're not going to make any. Right? It, it's really that simple. And so Jesus and the, the emphasis in the New Testament is, man, so make sure you first are living your life. You don't want to you don't want to lead others but be disqualified yourself. Right? The Bible talks about so make sure you're leading yourself first. That's why Paul challenges this young leader Timothy. He's to watch his own life and his own doctrine closely. He says if you do a good job of watching your own life and your own teachings, your own beliefs, 
says that it'll, you'll not only save yourself, but your hearers as well. Because that's how leadership works. It starts in here. It's a heart kind of deal. Of course, we could talk forever about how Jesus modeled this, how he led himself uh, amazingly well. He withdraw to lonely places to be with the Father in times where there was great pressure for him to achieve and perform and take a place of honor and leadership and all this stuff and coming to prominence. He's like, no. He's like, I need to go alone, go, go and be alone with my Father. It's a self-leadership sort of move. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's struggling, he's looking ahead towards the cross, right? He knows it's coming. He knows it's coming. And all the suffering and anguish that was a part of it, and he is battling in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, God, if there is another way, if there's a plan B that we can still achieve the same function, let's, can we do that? And, and yet he gets to a place where he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. May your will be done. That's self-leadership. It's hard. He said he was so stressed, he was sweating drops of blood as he's looking at and yet comes to that place of surrender before the Father, saying, okay, God, let's do this. I'm yours. Self-leadership. Well, I, am, I could kind of keep talking about that for a very long time, and I should watch my time. But uh, uh, this week I was reading a, a bunch of First Samuel, and there's a story in there I want us to, to kind of zero on, in on uh, that's talking, uh, just a great example about self-leadership, and it's from a guy by the name of David, right, David, who eventually becomes King David. In this era, he is um, an officer in Saul's army, and he is a heck of a fighter, right? I mean, the people uh, had, had come up with songs about him, right? Saul is slain his thousands, and David is king tens of thousands, right? I mean, like, he's a, he was a tremendous warrior. All, you know, a lot of the other um, Soldiers and stuff looked up to him, followed him, that kind of stuff. But he's with a group of 600 um, of his, of his uh, fellow soldiers, and they've been out uh, battling with the Philistines at that time. And, uh, and, and things are going well. They get done with that. They return home and find that their homes, uh, while they were gone, the Amalekite army had sort of raided their town. They'd lit their houses on fire. Uh, burned the whole town to the ground. Basically, all their possessions were gone. They took their wives and their children, and they kidnapped them and hauled them off as plunder. And this is the the role that David uh, comes back to. And I just want to read through this because because oftentimes I think the opportunities and the the foundations for leadership we think we like to think of leadership as the glory moments, the mountaintop moments, right? When everything is going great. I'll tell you what. This story that we're going to read here, in the midst of despair is where leadership begins, right? It's where leadership begins, leading ourselves well in the the midst of seasons when things are not going as well as we would like. So does that that make sense? You with me? Let's just kind of read through this. Uh, 1 Samuel 30, uh, starting with verse 1, says this, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and the Ziklag, and they'd attacked the Ziklag, Ziklag, and they'd burned it. They'd taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When, De- when David and his men reached Ziklag, uh, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Can you, can you kind of picture the sight? It was horrible. I remember uh, in high school, I had a friend uh, of mine, a 15-year-old kid, that uh, overnight died from a brain aneurysm. Like he was home doing well, and then all of a sudden, boom, he was dead. And uh, I have to say, 
probably the worst funeral I've ever been to. It was one of those deals that, like, as you, the, the line from the funeral home went blocks down the road. And when you got to within a block of it, you could hear weeping and wailing. Just everybody, even in line, is just bawling their eyes out. Can you imagine the sound of 600 grown men bawling their eyes out, weeping and wailing because everything has been lost? They've lost everything. Their, their homes, their kids, their wives, everything. Their fathers, their mother, they're gone. They're gone. They have lost everything. And I think I don't understand exactly what that's like, but I think all of us understand what, what disappointment feels like. All of us understand what grief feels like, some of us more than others, right? All of us understand, uh, what, I mean, have had things go badly, really, really badly, and it leaves you weeping. It takes far less than this for me to, to get to my wit's end and be like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why, why are things not working out the way I had planned? God, this is not the way it's supposed to go. It's not supposed to happen this way. And if that were enough, it gets worse. Listen to this, uh, verse 5. So David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of uh, Nabal of Carmel. Listen to this. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So you top it all off. I mean, not only is David one of them, he's on his face likely, like on the ground in a pile, weeping and weeping and weeping until his strength was gone. And then he starts noticing the other guys start kind of coming around and saying, whose idea was it for us to go off to battle? It's you, right? Who's... Who's to blame for our loss? It's you, his friends, his, his comrades, the people he had been in the foxhole with, suddenly turn on him. I mean, can you imagine? He's just at his, at his end point. All, is, all seems lost at that moment. I just think, man, this is a fascinating picture because at that moment, who does he choose to lead? <laughs> Does he, I mean, does he break out? He's like, this is a leadership moment. Does he break out his Braveheart speech, right? <laughs> Freedom! And kind of rally the troops, try to get his own troops back on his side. It's like, hey, we're going to go after him and we're going to do this. And no, he, he doesn't choose to lead his troops. He doesn't choose to lead down. Does he decide, oh, you know what? I'm going to go with a formal parlay or whatever you call that. I don't know. It's not like a thing. I don't know. But like, I'm going to take the white flag. I'm going to go out and meet with the enemy soldiers, and I'm going to try and broker a deal. I'm, sorry, is that who we, I'm going to exert my influence on them and see if we can't do a prisoner exchange or like work. Is that where he leads? Is that where he leads? Who does he lead? He leads himself. This, I mean, the, the words here are, are fascinating. David found strength in the Lord is God. He leads himself. I think the ESV has a much better translation, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. But I love the way it's... Because this one almost sounds a little bit passive, but it's not at all. The language... Uh, go to that next slide, if you would. The language is way more intentional than that. Can you go to that next slide, Kyle? Yeah. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. Isn't that great? But David, who did he choose to lead? He's like... 
I need to lead my own heart. I need to lead my own soul because I'm on empty. I got nothing on my own. We're totally dead here. He strengthened himself in the Lord. I love that language. Instead of grumbling, instead of giving up, he strengthened himself. He led himself back to the Lord from fear to faith, from grief to hope. He strengthened himself in the Lord. And I just think, man, uh, I, was, I was talking this week uh, with Jody. Jody came in, was setting up for uh, the uh, escape room and stuff this weekend. He stopped in on Tuesday and dropped some stuff off. He said, hey, man, how you doing? I, I told him, like, I'm grumpy. <laughs> I'm grumpy. And he's like, what? What's going on? And I'm like, just nothing. I mean, things not going. I didn't get done. I mean, it was one of those days where you're trying to get a bunch of stuff done, and you end up further behind than when you started. Like, nothing was going the way it was supposed to. And had some. And I kind of had that kind of a week, kind of grumpy, and I was kind of complaining and sort of pity party-y at different times. And, man, I'll tell you what, as, as I was reading these words this week, it was convicting to me. of Like, you know, so often I think I and maybe we may, were tempted to get on the complainy bus and to get on Facebook and say, my life is so terrible. And these people, these soldiers, they're supposed to be my friends, but they've turned on me and everything else. And, and we're hoping that our friends are going to chime back and say, well, they're just toxic and you should just cut them off. Right. I mean, like <laughs> we post stuff like that. We're, we're like, yeah, we tell them. I mean, we want people to sort of make us feel better a little bit and whatever else, or either that, or we can just say, I'm done. I quit. You know, I've been giving my life to you ungrateful soldiers. I've been trying to lead you and try to whatever. I'm just, I'm out of here. You know what I mean? It's tempting to complain or to quit. But you want to know what that solves? Nothing. You want to know what me being grumbly solves or me kind of being, what does that, what does that solve? Nothing. In fact, probably among other things, I probably pass it on to other people. Instead of what needs to happen, right? I need to take a cue from David I need to learn to strengthen myself in the Lord. I think, oh, what a great moment. When I'm feeling grumpy instead of complaining or quitting, saying, you know what, Lord, I need, you're the one I need. Would you, would you draw my eyes to you? Would you raise them to you? Would you remind me of your promises? Would you remind me that there is a God on the throne? What he says goes every time. He keeps his promises. God, would you lift my eyes to you? Would you remind me of your power and your glory? Would you lift my eyes where I am hopeless? God, would you remind me there's hope because you are powerful. You are present and your will will be done. Would you lift, would you strengthen me in my inner being? Would you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Would you move us from grief to hope? Would you strengthen us? Man, it's just such a good reminder. Instead of running away, instead of grumbling, that we go to the Lord, we seek his face, and we find what we need from him. I was just thinking about it this week and say, it could be that it's just me, but I kind of don't think so. I think the culture that we live in today influences us in that direction, doesn't it? influences us to sort of get grumpy, to get grumpy. Maybe we might weep like David does. 
but then we're tempted to share it with others. We're tempted to go to all different kind of places. Maybe if we're really feeling bad, we're tempted to go and drown it with alcohol, or we're tempted to go go numb it by spending money and buying stuff, right? And just getting getting whatever we want. That'll make it feel better, yeah. Or binge. Uh, we were joking last night, <laughs> or we could go binge watch like nine hours of some show on Netflix, and at the end of it, are we gonna feel better? I feel just as empty as we did when we started, right? We're tempted to numb it or drown it or just make it busy. We'll just be busy so we don't really have to think about it. All the while, the Lord is calling us and saying, man, I've got what you need. Would you strengthen yourself in my presence? Would you strengthen yourself in the Lord? That's where fullness and life and everything else is found. Man, anytime, friends, that we open up his word during the week and we pray, God, would you lift my eyes? Would you reveal yourself to me? Would you give me a promise or a word from you today? Anytime we come and worship and draw close to God, anytime we hit our knees and draw near to him and pour out our hearts and seek his face and ask him to intervene, we are strengthening ourselves in the Lord. We're gaining spiritual strength so that we will be able to stand no matter what what hits us that day. We come in on Sundays and we raise our hands and we proclaim his goodness and we sing of his love and his faithfulness again and again and again. Whenever we fix our eyes on the Lord, even throughout our day on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, we are strengthening ourselves in the Lord so that we're prepared so that we can stand no matter what comes. Man, how I wish we could recover this lost art in our church, in our own lives. He strengthened himself in the Lord. Well, what does that even mean? Let's talk about that a little bit more. Most scholars would agree that it's in this era when uh, David is struggling, when his wife and kids have been taken away, when his army turned against him, that he wrote Psalm 40, which is a fascinating psalm. I want to read through it today. It's... it's uh, got some great lessons, some great principles here, and I want to just kind of look at it because I think in the verses of Psalm 40, we can see how David strengthened himself in the Lord. So I'm going to look at four things just real quickly after we read through it. It says this, uh, Psalm 40, starting with verse 1, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders that you have done, the things that you have planned for us. None of them compare with you. Were I to speak and to tell of your deeds, your good deeds, they'd be too many to declare. Verse 6. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. Uh, It's written about me in this scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I don't seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I don't hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak it, right? I speak of your faithfulness. I speak of your saving help. I don't conceal your love or your faithfulness from the great assembly. I let it be known. Verse 11, don't withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. 
See if this feels like what we've been talking about. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. He's come through again. (laughs) But as for me, verse 17, but as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Isn't that great? I mean, you can just hear the emotion dripping out of this psalm. David took his grieving. He took his fear. He took his insecurity. He took his anxiety. He took his loneliness. And he brought it to the Lord. As you read throughout Psalm 40, you start to see David's perspective change and his confidence in God increase and now in how he lifts his eyes to the Lord. I'm just going to summarize kind of four distinct parts, and they're in different kind of order sometimes, but I'm just going to kind of go through this. Four distinct parts. I'll hit them briefly. But what does it mean, and what does it look like that he strengthened himself in the Lord? Well, the first one is he remembers God's faithfulness and his, his saving works in the past David starts out by remembering other times that he's been in a slimy pit before in mud and mire where there seemed to be no way out, but God stepped in and rescued him. Many are the wonders you have done. He said, if I were to number them, they would outnumber anything, I, the words I have. Right? It's more and greater than you can imagine. In other words, God, you have been faithful to me. You have rescued me again and again and again. I've been in trouble before, but you came through. It's part of why I think Jesus teaches us to pray that way. He says, you know, when you pray, I want you to go and I want you to get down on your knees. I want you to pray this. I want you to pray, Father in heaven. What's he say? Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. He says, holy is your name. It means, God, you are perfect and you are complete and you have need of nothing. There is nobody else like you. You are powerful and present. Holy is your name. There's something about that that strengthens our soul, doesn't it? It sort of raises our eyes from the problems and the situations, and it reminds us there is a God who is big and powerful and present. He can do whatever he wants. I am, it is not hopeless because God is still on the throne, right? He's present. He's powerful. He's available. When we remember God's faithfulness and his saving acts of the past, ways that he's come through for us again and again and again, we're reminded of who God is. We're reminded that he's the creator. He holds all power. He holds all authority. There is nothing that he can't handle. I was reminded this week, uh, the 12 spies, I think, uh, that were sent in. Some of you guys remember the story, right? Uh, The people of Israel have been living as slaves in Egypt, and God set them free, right? And and uh, and was taking them to the promised land. He he takes them through the Red Sea, remember, and kind of takes them on this journey. Takes them to the promised land, and and then they send in twelve spies. Uh, to kind of spy out this land, this promised land. And, and all of them come back, and they're unified. They're like, oh, man, this land is awesome. I mean, they, they, they refer to it as a land flowing with milk and honey. They bring back fruit that's enormous. They bring back, I mean, they're, they're just like, oh, man, 
It is way better than you can even possibly imagine. This land that God has promised to give us, it's awesome. And they all also agreed there's people that live there that are big, right? They're strong. They're scary. They're whatever else. Everybody agrees. But 10 of the 12 say there's no way we could possibly win the day. We should quit. We should turn it in. We're not strong enough. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. We're just little tiny things, and they're these huge giants. There's no way we could win this battle. But two of them, this is my words, not what's actually in the scripture, but two of them strengthened themselves in the Lord. They said, yep, you know what? You're right. Those people are big, and they are strong, but God is more than up to the task. Interestingly enough, those two, Joshua and Caleb, are the only two that God allowed to enter the promised land out of that generation. And sometimes I think, man, maybe what's standing between us, you, and the promised land that God has for you, maybe it's a moment of strengthening yourself in the Lord. It's a moment to, to not quit, not complain, not give in, not be defeatist, but as a way to remember, there is a God that is on the throne. What he says goes, and I'm following him, come what may. Who knows what God will do? Uh, going back to the, uh, our passage, I mean, it's crazy, but he says, blessing, right? Blessing, God's blessing comes to those who trust in him. God has good stuff in stores we follow. I should keep going. Second one, uh, second part of strengthening ourselves in the Lord is that he worships with God's people. He proclaims God's goodness in the great assembly. I'll proclaim your saving work in the great assembly. He said, I'll speak of your faithfulness and your saving help, and I'll share it with God's people. He's talking about worship and gathering together with New Testament word, but the church, right? And uh, even sharing what God has done. And I have to say, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but man, there's something powerful about that, ways that we need one another. And when we are in the crapper and things are hard and the challenges are too great and our strength is too small, it's tempting to back off and to go hide in our hole, right? Say, I'm just going to stay home and watch Netflix. I'm not going to get up and go to worship. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to group. I'm not going to, whatever. I'm just too sad for that. I'm too, it's too much. And when we do so, we do it to our own detriment, because you know what? All of us need to be here. Uh, I so appreciate it. Sometimes you can see it on people's faces when we're leading worship where we are singing songs of God's faithfulness and God's power and God's whatever. And I know stories where people are struggling and they are grieving and they're whatever else and they are full on worshiping. Why? Because it's part of how we cling to that thread of hope, that, that thread of, yes, God, I, it, I don't feel this, I don't see it, but I'm believing. It's sort of the whole help me with my unbelief, right? I, I do believe this, but help me to believe it, right? I, I'm believing that you're faithful. I'm believing that you're good. I'm believing that you're going to come through. I'm believing you keep your promises, even though I don't feel feel it. I cling to it. We need that. And that's, that's part of what David does here, right? Is he says, man, I'm going to go to worship. I'm going to proclaim God's goodness, even though I don't feel it. And I think, man, there's something powerful that happens when we do that. It's part of how we hold on. It's part of how our faith gets bolstered again. It's, it's part of how the door opens to a glimmer of hope in our lives. We're like, you know what? Maybe God can come through. Maybe he is good. Worship 
changes everything. Third one, he confesses his sins to God. And this one's huge. Part of self-leadership, part of strengthening ourselves in the Lord, part of just being a Christ follower is admitting when we sin, when we screw up, when we have been wayward and saying, God, would you forgive me and repenting, turning back to him and saying, would you bring me back home? Man, when we, are li- when we live our lives in sin, there's barriers that develop. It's primarily from our side, but barriers that develop between us and others, between us and the Lord. And confession, when we are honest, we agree with God about we're screwed up, we're a mess, we need your salvation, your, uh, your forgiveness to make us clean. Those barriers, those walls come down and we, are, we can feel God's presence again. We can step in and draw near and be close. There's something powerful. I ran across this quote uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, and I put it in my journal because it's awesome. And I just think this is so true. It's from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He says this. Can you get the, go to the next slide? I think I've got it up there. Okay, well, this is what he says either way. He says, uh, he says, you can't divide the world into good and bad people. Rather, the line dividing good and evil cuts right through the center of every human heart. And you know what? That's the truth about me, and that's the truth about you. We'd like, to, we'd like to make it like, well, we're good people and you're bad, you know, or whatever. It's not like that. The Bible teaches, and what's true is that our hearts are are evil, right? We've got sin that has tainted all kinds of stuff in us. It's skewed us. It's blinded us. Uh, David talks about that. It's blinded us. And it is in the moments where we confess, where we come clean with God, we say, God, would you, would you cleanse my heart? Would you point out the sins that are in me? And we lay them down and we are grieved over our sin. We got, God, would you forgive us? And would you teach us and empower us to live our lives with you? for you in step with your spirit right in line with the truth of your word and your kingdom when we do that man we experience freedom the weight comes off our shoulders and we again we're bolstered our faith is bolstered our uh, our walk with god is bolstered i think again that's probably why um why jesus in in uh, the lord's prayer teaches the same thing he says when you pray you should pray, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Confession is part of how we uh, strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And that takes us to the fourth one. Uh, this is, and I'll just hit this one very briefly, but he prays uh, to God to come and save him. This is where he gets honest about God, I need you. Be pleased to save me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me, he says. For you are my help and my deliverer. Sometimes the, the book of James tells us, sometimes we have not because we ask not. Right? Sometimes it's that simple. Sometimes we are at our wit's end and we are whatever and we've complained about it and we've whined about the way things are and we've gotten in our funk about it and we're like, 
binge watching things and binge eating things and we're doing all kinds of things, but we've never actually prayed about it, right? We've never actually brought it to the Lord and said, God, would you help? Would you break in? Would you bring hope and life and light? Would you change the circumstances? Change me, change the circumstances, whatever, whatever you need to do, have your way. And I, in, in, in this example, as David seeks the Lord, he asks God, he says, he, he doesn't just take matters into his own hands, but he asks God and says, God, should I pursue those that took our family, those that destroyed our homes? And God says, yeah, go after them. And so David and his men went, and they came home with everything that was taken from them, including their wives and their kids. David says in Psalm 40, he says, God blesses those who trust in him, and it's true. That, too, is part of strengthening ourselves in the Lord, is simply bringing our requests to him and praying and saying, God, would you work? Would you save? Would you heal? Would you intervene? The Bible tells us that uh, those of us who seek uh, to serve and to lead, those of us who seek to have an impact for God's kingdom, we desire a noble thing, the Bible says. But real biblical leadership, it's by example. It starts with leading ourselves, our own hearts. Real biblical leadership and impact begins with learning to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And I wonder where you're at with this this morning. Maybe you're here today and, and you're struggling in one way or another. Maybe you feel like you're in a pit, a slimy pit, and you can't get out as much as you would like. Maybe you've been wounded and you feel abandoned by those that should be closest to you, that should have your backs. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by the challenges that that, that you're facing and it feels like there's no way to get out. Maybe you're grieving from what has been taken from you. No matter what the challenges that you're facing today, no matter what it is, I believe that the Lord is calling to you and calling to me today saying, would you come to me? Would you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Would you come today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that? And would, you, would you seek the Lord? Would you remember his faithfulness and his saving works in the past? Would you commit to continually gathering together to worship and to tell of his great saving works in your life? Would you take your sin seriously, confess it, and turn back to God? Let's be the people that Jesus is, is calling us to be. And would you pray? Would you draw near to God? Would you bring your problems, your struggles, your opportunities, your desires, your griefs, your challenging challenges, would you lay them down at his feet and cry out for him to work and then wait for his salvation, wait for his leading, and wait for his work? Let's close in prayer. Father God, we, uh, we need you. I think just for me, just forgive, forgive me and forgive us, God, for too easily and too often um, settling for Netflix or settling for uh, alcohol or settling for who knows whatever, shopping, uh, instead of really coming and finding all that we need in you. God, would you teach us as your people, teach us to be to be men and women that strengthen ourselves in you, that are reminded of your greatness and your power and your strength, people that worship you for who you are. Would we be people that take sin seriously, that confess it and turn back to you, just learn to walk with you in obedience to you and in your spirit? Would you teach us, God, to be men and women of prayer, that we would be quick 
to bring whatever happens and lay it down at your feet and, and ask for your will and your guidance and your you to bust in and bring salvation and hope and life once once more. We need you, God. We love you. We just open up our hearts and surrender. We open up our hearts and just say, come, Lord Jesus, come and have your way. We want to make room for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.